Welcome to Be Customer-Led, where we'll explore how leading experts in customer and employee experience are navigating organizations through their own journey to be customer-led and the actions and behaviors employees and businesses exhibit to get there. And now, your host, Bill Stakos. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Stakos. Welcome back to Be Customer Led. Really excited for our guest this week. I think you guys are going to just love this show. Such an important topic. Ken Thompson is principal and partner and CEO of a company called Align Org Solutions. We're going to get into what they do in a second, but they've worked with major, major brands. You know, Just to rattle off a few of them, you may have heard. FedEx, Google, Chick-fil-A for those in the United States. I'm a, well, I'm a huge Chick-fil-A fan, so are my kids. Whose kids are not? Ken also spent about 25 years in the U.S. Army, which is pretty cool. So he's, he's got a really interesting journey that we're going to talk to him about. Ken, thanks so much for coming to Beat Customer Led. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. We're going to get into some, a really cool topic and one that is really just near and dear to my heart. And others have kind of talked, you know, heard me talk about this, just organizational change and impact on customer and employees. Before we get into the topic, and you've written a great book about this, like all this, we're going to get into that too. Just tell us about your journey, Ken. What led you to kind of leading Align Org Solutions? Again, you've got this really incredible and rich history with the U.S. Army. Just like, how did you get into where, you know, what you're doing today? Oh, boy. It certainly is an interesting story, probably a path that uh, you would see that's not necessarily typical for someone who is, is working in my space. but. I also think maybe that's one of the things that uh, helped me be successful with the organizations that we get to work with. But a little bit about my background. Right after college, uh, I went active duty military. I was assessed to the aviation branch, which was kind of a lifelong dream line since I was was a little boy. Uh, I grew up in northern Utah, and in my room, I had a picture uh, of Thurl Bailey, who was a famous jazz player, jazz forward from the basketball team. And he was standing in front of a Cobra helicopter squishing a basketball. And, and that sat there. And I was always just a big fan. And so I always wonder sometimes, did that subliminally you know, kind of leave me? It's like, hey, I want to go fly attack helicopters or something. I'm not sure. But uh, I did want to, to go fly attack helicopters for the Army. And so I worked very hard in, in college, went through an ROTC program and uh, went active duty and spent the next you know, 24 years uh, doing that. 18 of those years was active duty Wow. Uh, in the process of that, two deployments to Iraq, two to Afghanistan, and uh, flew well over 3,000 hours in the Apache helicopter, led some very large units, had a couple of battalion and squadron commands. And uh, yeah, after 18 years, I went to into the reserves so I could finish up my 20 and uh, then joined a couple companies. As the first one, I was in a, a logistics company as a CEO and, and member of the board of a rapidly growing mid-market logistics company who uh, now is a top 20 in the U.S. So it's, it's continued wow. to grow very rapidly. Uh, the other one was a, a manufacturing warehousing company that uh, was in the red and was upside down on, on the brink of, of going out of business. And I did a hired gun CEO stint with that for a year and got that company turned around. And in the process of that, I was looking for my next opportunity and I happen to know one of the founders of Align.org. We, we go way back uh, to you know, our college time. And uh, we had kept in touch. And 
he asked if I would, you know, come do what I had been doing in some of my other assignments and say, why don't you come do this and help me help other organizations and do it. And we'll just do a lot more of them instead of just being in one organization, you can do a whole bunch. And so I said, let me come try it out. And I tried it out for a few months, immediately fell in love with the type of work and the quality of people that we get to work with and meet. And, you know, watching the success of, of our transformations has just kept me going. And uh, it's been super fun. Haven't really looked back since, frankly. That's awesome. Well, well, first, Ken, thank you for your service. Uh, that Got to say that. And wow, what, what an amazing background and then transition from the U.S. Army into corporate and now doing consulting and helping so many companies. Tell us a little bit about what your company does. Uh, how do you guys work with clients and you know, the type of transformational change that you guys look to, uh, to drive? All right. Well, I'll give you probably our uh, more academic answer, but we do strategic organization design uh, for companies. Many of our clients happen to be in the Fortune 500 space but we also have a handful of clients who aren't. Uh, and what that means is we help organizations define their strategy, how they're going to win in the marketplace, uh, what capabilities are needed to support the strategy. Mm-hmm. And, and once we have those figured out, then how to design and build the organization to support it or enable those capabilities in that strategy. So that piece comes with work and structure and governance, uh, measurements, KPIs, culture, all of these other business systems that need to be brought into alignment to deliver the capabilities, which ultimately deliver a winning strategy. And so that's what we help organizations figure out and build and implement. That's that's really interesting because, I mean, I've worked on the corporate side for a long time. Typically, you see companies develop strategy and execute within the construct of the organizational makeup that they've got in place, not necessarily, let's, here's our strategy, you know, purpose, mission, you know, values, mission, strategy, and tactics. Let's ar- align the organization around that if that's what we're if that's what they're going to do and deliver. When do you guys see executives kind of raise their hands and say, you know what, we actually need help here. And we is there like a trigger or is there like a, a point, maybe even a company's kind of evolution where they're like, you know what, we're not set up for success here. We think we've got the right strategy, but we're not set up for success in the right way. It's a great question. Uh, there's probably the two most common triggers that I see. Uh, the first one would be a, a results-based uh, transformation. You know, as it, we often say, every organization is designed to get the results it gets. And so, if an organization is getting certain results, it's because it's designed to get those results. So, if you want to have different results, then we need to design the organization to deliver different results. And that will often begin a conversation, you know, with a C-level about what results do you want to see? Is it clear in your organization what your strategy is and how you're going to win and be chosen over your competition? Mm-hmm. Or if you're even a function leader or CEO leader inside of your business, is it really clear what the purpose is of your organization? Why does the enterprise rely upon your COE or your function to help the enterprise succeed as a whole? And making sure that we deliver those those specific results. And when we know what those results are, we know what our current environment is, our current capabilities, then it's a matter of bridging the gap. And so that's when we'll start to design the organization to its more ideal future state and then build a roadmap on how to, to implement that. The second piece that we often see is, is areas of really internal misalignments. Often it, it's around work. It's you know, the chaos of the day-to-day 
running the business compared to who is watching out and managing the more strategic stuff. Because we know that the day-to-day necessary work is still very important and critical for the organization, but it will often overrun those competitive work activities that are so much needed for that long-term play for the organization. And so helping leaders understand how to separate these and, and how to then build the organization out so that you have teams and people and pockets within the organization that are doing and managing that competitive work and it's managed with deliberateness while the rest of the organization is driven for efficiency to manage that day-to-day necessary kind of work. And so when we can help separate those things and then build a structure that does it with its appropriate decision rights and all the other components to bring the full organization into alignment, um, that's when we see that the leaders start to really reap the benefits of, of this work. And I'm sure you see all the time, Ken, you've got great talent in an organization just, just because it's set up the wrong way. That talent is just by default underutilized, right? You know, one of the things that I always find fascinating about companies, and I've, I've, I've had the good fortune of you know, going through a couple of rodeos myself, right, is that this is not necessarily new, right? But companies still get it wrong a lot. You know, why do you think that is? Like, what is your, I mean, you've seen a lot of companies now kind of giving you work. Like, why do companies still get it wrong? Like, is it just because it's really hard to do and there's not appetite to drive that or go through the type of change, or maybe they don't have the stomach to do the type of change that's required? Or, you know, why do you think that is? So I think there's probably a couple contributors to, to that particular problem. First and foremost, what we often see is leaders or organizations don't necessarily know how to articulate a strategy. Uh, just as a quick example, we were helping a, a rapidly growing uh, company who went public some time ago. So they, but they, this was before that time, and they were still struggling. And so they hired us to come in and, and kind of help them adjust a few things and get where they wanted to be. So as I was getting ready to to travel to this uh, headquarters of this particular company, uh, I'd still been asking for some, you know, read aheads. Tell me some information. I'd like to. What is your strategy? Because mm-hmm. the CEO said, "Yes, we have a strategy. Everything's fine. It's probably just some other misalignments that uh, that we need some adjustments on." And I said, "That's great, but you know, please send me what you have." As I'm getting on the plane, it was a very long plane ride. Uh, he excitedly called me up and says, "Ken." Check your email. I just sent you. We had an executive retreat. We came up with our strategy. I sent you the doc. Read it, and we'll talk when you land. Uh, and he was coming to pick me up at the airport. So uh, I downloaded this strategy document. It was 72 pages long. And I read it five times because it was a very long play, right? It was an international client. Uh, it was picked up by the CEO, and he came up to me and said, Ken, CEO, so what did you think? And I said, you know, it was there was a lot of really good stuff in there. There was mission statements. There was vision. There was key aspirations. Uh, there was some motivational stuff. There was everything in there. There was financial performance, but I didn't see any strategy. He's like, well, isn't that stuff strategy? I said, all those things help build and support a strategy, but no, that, that is not really a strategy. I said, but don't worry, we'll help you with that. So articulating a strategy and actually knowing what that means and and how to integrate that into the organization is probably one of the biggest things. And then I would say the second reason why we often get called is sometimes people just need process facilitators. You know, I'm not an expert in any one particular field, so I can't come in and say, hey, this is how you should, you know, engineer this product uh, or anything like that. But, But what I am is I'm a process expert. So I can take an executive team through a process 
and assure that they ask the right questions at the right time and build out the right things so that it makes sense, so that we get the strategic blueprint for their organization that can now be implemented and integrated into, into what they do. And because we like to do this very collaboratively, so we'll encourage the CEO or the C-level and, and many of their direct reports, uh, key strategic-minded people in the organization, key customer representatives, and so on, to be part of this design session. And, and because we do it, it's a very collaborative process. Uh, and we make a lot of trade-offs and, and have a lot of difficult, candid conversations about many things. We decide what we're going to do and not do. But in the process of that, we decide together on how we're going to build this organization. And the power of that buy-in and collaboration is invaluable because as we then go into an implementation stage, mm-hmm. those key leaders that help build this are now the ones that are leading out on these smaller, more vertically integrated uh, processes that we need to, to capture and continue to build out. But they know why. Instead of them just being told, this is what you should do, they help create it. And we know that leaders will always better support what they helped help co-create. 100%. And employees will you know, create or deliver incremental effort, right? When they've That's been right. sort of part of that process as well. It's not just, I'm punching in and out every day because this is what my boss told me to do. I'm always fascinated by the courageous individuals in companies that say, I think this is wrong. And, and they stand up um, and, and do and, and help kind of be a catalyst for change. So if you are a leader or even an employee in your organization, and there certainly could be uh, listeners even on this show thinking about this, and certainly in, in a customer experience function, you like to think of yourself as a catalyst for, for change on behalf of the customer, even behalf of the employee. If you believe that there is a change that needs to be made that would benefit the primary stakeholders of an organization, investors, employees, customers, partners, you name it, the business overall, where do you start? What questions or how would you counsel the individual listening who's maybe in that position? What questions should they be asking themselves or their leadership maybe to kind of start that off? Yeah. So if I'm thinking of of the customer experience specifically within the organization, you know, wondering how good are we, how good should we be, and so on. The first question I would ask is, is the customer experience something that our particular company should differentiate in or not? If it is something that clearly distinguishes and should distinguish the organization, then I would expect to have conversations around then what critical capabilities or special capabilities uh, and blending of capabilities does your organization have that delivers this unique differentiated customer experience. Uh, But for many organizations, a differentiated customer experience is not necessarily necessary. And many times just having a very efficient, streamlined customer experience is really all the customers want and need. And they may choose to differentiate by the product itself uh, or the service itself or something Mm -hmm. else like that. So really, I think one of the first key decisions that leaders should make is, is the customer experience is that something that we should differentiate ourselves from the competition on or not? And then based on that decision, then you know we would attack that completely differently based on the answer of that decision. And then if you ask that question and someone says, yes, we want to differentiate on customer experience, how do you start pulling on that thread? Great question. So when we get to that point in the stage, then we want to start to say, okay, 
if you are choosing to differentiate in your customer experience, what specifically about it is it that we want to differentiate and what capabilities drive that differentiation? Um, Often it's not just one capability, it's a Mm -hmm. blending of many capabilities brought together into the offering that make a differentiated customer experience. And so, you know, we want to first of all make sure, do we understand what those critical capabilities are and how they come together to deliver that customer experience? Uh, And then how good are we in each of these capabilities? Are all of them fully developed and implemented and integrated into our organization? And are we driving them for effectiveness? Because since it is a differentiated experience, we want to drive for effectiveness, not necessarily even efficiency. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure we're really, really good at it. Uh, and then I would start to ask questions like, then do we know how all of these different parts uh, in this value process of our customer experience, how do they come together and who owns them? And is it clear where the handoff points are? Do we have the right dashboards and systems to monitor this to ensure that we're doing good and, and that we can make improvements? Do we have 360 feedback you know, between the customer and us and our own organization and so on? So that's how we start to then go about the differentiated side of, of a customer, differentiated customer experience. Ken, I really appreciate your point around effectiveness. And I think that a lot of companies get productivity, efficiency, and effectiveness wrong. Right? They kind of conflate those terms sometimes. Right? You can produce 100 widgets, but if your customers don't want to buy them, what's the point of producing 100 widgets? And you can produce those even efficiently as well, right? Um, Absolutely. But if you're not, efficacy for me is around you produce 100 widgets and your customers want all 100 every day of the week all year long and it's a it's a sustainable business right so not to be lying, i just wanted to highlight that because that's a really i see that a lot in business today where people say we need we want to be more productive or you know we should be more efficient in how we do things is it really that or do you want to be more effective in how you do and to me it's almost like Productivity times efficiency equals effectiveness on some level, right? Does. So, well, and, um, and I think, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, please. You know, as I look, you know, each of us in our minds probably have examples of good and bad customer experience within a particular company. And, and Bill, I'm sure you have one. Love to hear if, if you have a good or a bad one that maybe you want to share, we could discuss for a moment. But I think of, I actually wrote an article about this a, a few years ago. So uh, I bought a pair of jeans uh, at a store that's a national chain here in the U.S. and absolutely love these jeans. It's one of the first times in many years that I wore these jeans and actually wore them out. Usually I outgrow them or they become out of style or something like that, but they just fit so well. But it was about four or five years later that I realized, man, these jeans are about shot. I need to get a new pair. And so I went back to the store and said, hey, I bought these jeans. I don't even know what brand they are, what they call, but I kind of started describing them a little bit, hoping that maybe I could find something kind of close from the sales associate. Mm. And the sales associate went up to her computer, asked me for my information uh, and looked up an account on me that I didn't even know existed and (laughs) found the pair of jeans that I bought in 2015. And, And so this was a few years ago. You know, it's what's 2022 now. At 2015, companies... Many companies did not have this kind of capability to go back and look at, at old purchases. And so here we are, and this is probably 2019, 2020, looking up a pair of jeans that I bought five, six years ago. Not only did it have them, it showed where I bought them. It showed a picture of the jeans so I could confirm that these were the jeans. 
Now, unfortunately, that particular brand and, and model of jeans were no longer in stock. But their system recommended three different types of other brands that were very similar. Right. And then the associate went out to the store, brought all three of these jeans out, and I was able to try them on and find a pair that were just as good as the original pair that I bought. So when I think of the customer experience as a, in a good example, all the different capabilities that this particular chain brought in to bear to deliver this customer service, I thought was exceptional. They knew where those critical touch points are with the customer, and that's where they chose to invest organizational capabilities to deliver those. And I think that's really key. So, I, I mean, you know, a lot of people talk about Warby Parker as someone who wears glasses. I'm, I'm not wearing Warbies right now, but I remember having a, a not so great experience because I swear that they put bacon in the frames. I had a lab that ate a pair of prescription sunglasses and a pair of prescription, just regular glasses both Warby Parkers. And I called customer service and they're like, wow, I'm really sorry. You know, please go to like, go to like a store because your prescription is out of date, et cetera. And I was like, okay, that's fine. They actually sent me a, a stuffed a dog toy of a, like of a dog toy wearing Warby Parker glasses, which I thought was kind of interesting and fun. But then when I went to the store, they, they must have pictures of their customers somehow. I have no idea how, but like, so I walk in and you know, I well, I guess I had an appointment. Maybe that's how they knew it. So, like, Mr. Stakos, we're really sorry about your experience. We're going to give you $20 off of each frame, or maybe it was more, actually. And I thought, isn't that nice? Like, I call customer service, but in the store, they've got the same information, and they've set up those organizational capabilities. So whoever the associate is, on the phone, in person, whatever that is, they know me. They know what I've purchased. They know what my problems have been. They know what my, you know, compliments have been and the survey scores that I've given. And I think that is so important to be able to share and democratize that information across a business so every employee can engage with a customer one-on-one -on -one in the same way, which is really critical. And to me, that's effectiveness. Like, can you deliver the same experience on the phone, in a store, wherever that is? So I feel like I'm a customer, a good one, no matter where I am and who I'm talking to. Yeah. I completely agree with you, Bill. It's a great point. And it's good to see that you had that positive experience. As simple as it sounds, so many organizations still struggle to deliver yeah. this very you know component of, of customer experience. You know, I think just one piece to kind of dovetail into your last comment, if you look at any customer journey, in many organizations, there's probably anywhere from 20 to 30 touch points between the customer and the organization. And and another thing that I think a lot of organizations tend not to to really understand is all of those 20 or 30 touch points, they are different. And not every one of them need to be designed for differentiation. If, if say, there's 20 touch points between the customer and the organization, often we'll see that there's only three or four critical touch points that really need to be driven for high impact, high value, uh, or what we call effectiveness. The other 17 can probably be driven for efficiency. It just needs to be accurate. It needs to be timely. Uh, it needs to be consistent. And that's what the customers expect. And so as you look at that customer journey, you know, picking out those critical points and then really delivering value in those and then driving efficiency and all the rest is, is always a, a key to success in, in this business. Yeah. And those handoffs work, like you said before, there's um, in psychology, there's peak end theory, right? You remember just your brain is wired to remember, remember the end of the experience and the peak of it, meaning my happiness or emotional state was strongly positive or strongly negative. And if you can right. improve those, just those two points, 
your chances for repeat business like on an order of magnitude uh, higher. Let's talk about, about the book. So your, your company published a great book, Mastering the Cube. It's a book about overcoming what you see as the stumbling blocks to success and creating a thriving organization. So one of the stumbling blocks that you highlighted and really it really resonated with me, frankly, was the secret society versus the building block of co-creation. My one question is, coming out of this was, how do you scale co-creation? That is a great question. So this is how we do it. When we co-create, you know, I mentioned earlier in our podcast that, that we do a very collaborative approach as, as process facilitators. So we'll spend a fair amount of time with the sponsor of the Transformation Project really picking out and figuring out who these key stakeholders are that we want to help co-create. It's not necessarily the direct reports of the, mm-hmm. of the particular CEO or leader. Oftentimes, it's a sprinkling of some direct reports with a bunch of others in the organization to help ensure that we build this strategic blueprint that's going to work. Uh, so we do spend a lot of time to get a lot of voices heard. And of course, we also do some diagnosis up front, uh, interviews and other things. And so we form this, this design team, and this is the design team that we'll take them through and we'll articulate the strategy and the capabilities, and then we'll start to make organizing choices about how we want to enable these capabilities and the strategy of the organization. And when we're done with this process, we now have this strategic blueprint that I'd mentioned before, mm. but, it, it, but it's just that. It's still just a framework. It's just a blueprint. And often we'll see, because we're designed to a future state, there's many other parts of the organization that we have changed. We maybe shifted some work activities from this part of the organization over to here. We stood up a COE. We did other things all based on, on getting the results that we want to get or creating differentiation in our offering or whatever our, our mm-hmm. objective is. And because there's other areas that have changed so much, we now need a sponsor that was on that initial design to then put together another team and build it deeper into the organization of those that are impacted by that particular part of the organization. And oftentimes that will happen two, three, four, sometimes even seven times of, of seven different subordinate work streams with subordinate collaborative teams building out this stuff. We call it nesting, mm-hmm. nesting these capabilities deeper into the organization. And so by the time we're done, and, and this is still just building out the how we're going to do it, we haven't started implementation yet, but even by then, we probably already have dozens and dozens of key leaders that were involved and helped build and co-create this process. So when it comes time to change management and the implementation piece, quite frankly, you know, we still do it, still put a lot of effort into it, but we find that we run into a lot less roadblocks mm-hmm. along the way because leaders aren't just being given the secret book of answers. They, they helped create it. And so you know, that change management piece tends to go a lot smoother as well. So I, I love your kind of, so I think about culture change a lot, like the technology diffusion adoption curve, right? You've got your early adopters on one end, your laggards on the other. Like you're already starting to get like the first few kind of big slices of that curve by, ne- and I love nesting. I, if, I hope you don't mind if I could steal it. I love that you're, you're already moving past the early adopter phase by going deeper in the organization and setting up, you know, these multiple teams and, and being able to do that. It makes the, it makes the change process incredibly easier after that. Do you follow ADCAR or, or Cotter? Like, what's your preferred kind of change management process? I'm curious. So, first of all, what we'll do is if an organization already has a change management system or process in place, 
then we usually will mold to theirs if that's Got what it. they are familiar yeah, with. Sense. If they don't, then yeah, the ad car model is is our preferred model, and we'll often recommend that to our clients because it's it's well known. Uh, we know that it works. It's been tested and proven over many many years. Uh, and frankly, I think it's just a streamlined, very good way of, of capturing that change management process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I just take it back to the stumbling blocks for one quick second? As I was going through it, I was thinking like, okay, n- not all of these are created equal. Is there a stumbling block or are there stumbling blocks, one or two maybe, that you see most often in organizations? And if so, like, how do you kind of counsel companies to think about them differently? Yeah, I think the one that we probably run into the most that I see a lot of head nods as we're working and, and scoping with companies on potential work is, is we have leaders that do realize that they're not getting the right results that they want to get. Mm-hmm. And they think that the magic answer is to go move people in boxes around in org charts. And so if I could just change and move this person over here and shuffle some teams around and then present that back to my organization, that's going to magically fix everything. And unfortunately, that really doesn't work. You know, structure is an element of organization design, but it's just an enabler. And uh, because it's just an enabler, it's not going to directly solve these other problems. That, that structure should be designed to deliver the critical capabilities of the organization, which should then be designed to support the strategy or the purpose of the organization. And so uh, it really is getting ahead of oneself when that happens. And frankly, it, it frustrates uh, the people that have to go through that change too, because they may not have helped co-create that magic structure, uh, may not exactly understand why things shifted, and you end up just kind of moving people's uh, cheese around, as they call it, and it just causes a lot of frustration. So we see that a lot. Uh, when we go through our process, structure is actually one of the very last things that we do. So you know, we might be designing, we might be on our fourth or fifth day of, of designing towards the end. And now we're going to start to talk about what structure will best support the strategy of this organization. And even then we do it without names. We do it by mm-hmm. heads of capabilities, key roles, things like that, so that we can take the personality and agendas and all of those things out of, of those key decisions that we have to make. Very, very cool. And I love you to make it about the person. You make it about sort of the what they're supposed, what that person's supposed to be driving, and the business outcomes are supposed right, to be the role of the person. Yeah, yep. I've got two more questions for you, Ken. One is uh, from a professional or industry perspective, who do you look up to in business? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, there's a lot. I I don't want to mention any names, but it. I will say this: it is really clear when we go into an organization where the high performing leaders are and who they are. And I think there's a few traits that set them apart from the others. So maybe I'll just focus on that a little bit. Yeah, that'd be great. When I see an organizational leader uh, that can provide purpose, direction, motivation, while at the same time express empathy and understanding for their team, they are already setting themselves far and above uh, your average leader. So, you know, those are some things I look for very quickly. And anytime we have a leader that is not good at those things, trying to lead a transformation, uh, it can be a little bit challenging. And so often our team will find ourselves doing a little bit of one-on-one conversations off to the side and help them go through this process. So I think that's very critical as, as leaders are leading a transformation. 
So I love the combination of those. I try and live those values myself every day. I know that I'm probably not hitting the mark 100%. I don't know a lot of folks that do, but there are certainly some great, great leaders out there that do. I've got one final question for you, Ken. Where do you go for inspiration? I go to books. I probably read about a book a month, which to some, that's probably not very much. To others, that might seem like a lot, but there are so many good authors out there that have so many good things to say, uh, you know, obviously because we do a lot of our, our work on site with our clients, I'm on a plane a lot. And so mm-hmm. I love to just bury myself with a good book. And, you know, if I want something a little more entertaining, I'll do a Malcolm Caldwell. Yeah. If I want, you know, something a little more business oriented, there's, there's hundreds of them. So yeah. I, I spend a lot of time just reading other books and, and I'm certain that many thoughts throughout all these books you read help inspire us and, and how we deliver our value to our clients. Very cool. I'm a huge believer. I just, I consume a lot of content generally. Uh, sometimes that's books, sometimes that's articles, you know, et cetera. But I think you have to do it. I think you need to keep, you know, just keep your skills and, and your thinking sharp and always looking ahead and understanding different perspectives and, and ideas. Otherwise you get stuck in this rut of, you know, this is the way I'm going to do it. And I'm right. Cause I've done it for 20 years and I've been yes. successful, but well, I find it's frustrating, you know, is, is we've talked a lot about the customer experience. When I see a really good one out there as I'm just out, you know, being a, an everyday citizen experiencing the customer experience in other organizations, there are times where I want to like say, give me your CEO right now. I want to go pat him on the back and say, you're doing really, really good here. And there's other times I, I, I want to go choke the CEO and say, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of things that are pretty messed up in your organization. You know, let's talk and let's go fix it. But, you know, we certainly don't recruit uh, from our customer experience. But it, it's just interesting on how stark, uh, how starkly different the customer experience can be from one company to the other. Yeah. Some really get it, some don't, and some just sit there and and kind of flutter a lot in that in that messy middle. You so, know, I'm always I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I'm always reminded when uh uh of John Stumpf, who's a former CEO of Wells Fargo, would always say, you know, by the time information gets to me, motor oil tastes like pizza. And <laughs> and, and whenever I have a bad experience, you know, the first thought in my head, and being what I do, like I'm always thinking about yeah. this and I'm always judging the experience as as even when I don't want to, it's just, you know, my natural state of, of being in <laughs> natural state of mind. But I'm always thinking like that CEO is eating pizza right now. Uh, you know, yeah. and there's, and there's motor oil down here. So that's true. Well, and, and one of the six aspects of organization design that, that we talk about is information and metrics. You know, it's, it's just like structure and work yep. and many other things. Information and metrics needs to be a critical part of how decisions are, are being made and, and getting that data in front of key decision makers to do it the right way. And without that, um, then you are subject to, you know, whatever kind of spin and, and such that may be presented to you. I think back of, you know, I mentioned I did a hired gun CEO for a year on, a, on turning a company around. Hmm. When I went to my first uh, executive meeting there, probably a week into the job, had all of my direct reports there, meeting many of them for the first time. Uh, and they're reporting on the status of their particular organization. Every single person started with the the words "I feel," um, and, and not that we can't have emotion uh, in our conference rooms, mm. 
but there was very little data that was being presented. And we probably spent the first 90 days just getting away from my field to what does the data show and where do we get the data that, that shows trends and key metrics and so on so that we can make decisions off of that, not exclusively off of a particular feeling. I love that. You know, when I was at Chase, I had a great boss. She would, uh, she was the CAO of the uh, home lending business. And whenever there was a, a meeting about driving some kind of change or whatever it was, not like, you know, uh, like a one-on-one or anything, but she had the first question always, let's get the facts on the table that, you know, or what were the facts, right? And, or what are the facts? And I always appreciated that because it just got people grounded very, very quickly in what do we know? What do we need to know? What don't we know? Right. And who's going to, and who can help us get that information? It was just a great way to kind of set the tone and not go into, this is how this, you can talk about how this is how this makes me feel, but just grounded in facts and what you know. Ken, where can people find you if they want to get in touch? So first and foremost, uh, alignorg.com. Uh, that is our company website. I'm also on LinkedIn uh, under Ken Thompson. I'd start both of those places. Uh, our website has all kinds of articles, executive guides. Uh, I personally wrote about a 30-page uh, executive guide for kind of C-level leaders on the customer experience. Uh, I think it's called uh, you know, how to build a differentiating customer experience. But we also have executive guides on metrics organizations, on transformation, on COEs. We could go on and on. So there's a lot of helps there. And I really recommend people just go there, go to our resources tab and uh, check out some of that material and see if it can help them as they go through their, their transformation. Absolutely. Ken, it's, it's such a pleasure having you on the show. I really do appreciate you joining us and you know, looking forward to just you know, seeing your success on LinkedIn and the company's success and really believe in what you all are doing. It's such critical work. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the great questions. Uh, and for allowing us the opportunity to share a little bit about what we do. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Another great show. We're out. Talk to you soon, everyone. Thanks for listening to Be Customer Led with Bill Stakos. We are grateful to our audience for the gift of their time. Be sure to visit us at BeCustomerLed.com for more episodes. Leave us feedback on how we're doing or tell us what you want to hear more about. Until next time, we're out. We'll be right back.